Jesus taught in Luke 14 that any person who desires to be his disciple must be willing to say, I will not hold on to anything from the lifestyle that I leave behind. That I will have only Christ and what Christ gives me. In other words, going with Jesus means that you lay down the right to rule your own life. It's what we just sang, that the cry of a Christ follower is, all I have is Christ, Jesus is my life. And Jesus says, if that is not true, you can't be my disciple. If it's not true, not that you know how to do that perfectly, but if that is not your willingness, then you, you're not ready to follow me, to be my disciple. Yet at the same time, as we read this morning in the opening passage in Luke 4, Jesus says that his ministry is about giving liberty to the captives. And so I call your attention to the fact that it seems to us contradictory to believe that freedom is found in submission. Because our mindset is, especially where we live in this country and in the part of the country that we live in, our mindset is that freedom, liberty, is about having self-autonomy. That True freedom is about being able to make your own decisions, rule yourself, and decide the direction of your life. And Jesus says that's not actual liberty. That just as a flower is not burdened by its need for the sun, but rather it blooms and it glories in the light of the sun, Jesus teaches us that we will delight and flourish when we give ourselves to dependence on Him. That is true liberty. What you and I have to know about ourselves is that we, at the end of the day, only live out our deepest convictions. It doesn't matter what we say, what we post what we talk about, at the end of the day, if you really want to know what you believe, you look at your manner of life. Because you only live your deepest convictions. And so, unless we have faith that submission to God actually maximizes our joy rather than diminishes it, we will likely never gladly follow after Jesus. It will only be if we truly think that is where liberty is, that is where joy is, that we will follow after Christ. And at the same time, we have to know there will always be, even when we make that decision, I want to gladly follow Christ, there will always be temptations in us and circumstances around us that will challenge the idea that true freedom is found in Christ rule rather than self-rule. Every day of your life, you will feel the tug of something that will say, is that, is that really true? Circumstances around you will cause you to say, is that really true? 
It is a spiritual battle, and that battle is one that was being waged in the church at Thyatira. We are told in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, that if we will read the words of this book aloud, if we will hear them and keep them, then we will be blessed. And that tells us that these seven letters that we are going through together wrote or written to first century churches, that those seven letters remain alive to any congregation that will listen and respond. That even today, some 2,000 years since they were written, that these letters are still meaningful and impactful to us if we will listen and repent and believe based on what we hear. And so that is what we're attempting to do as a church. We're going through these letters. We're listening. We want to hear. We want to do what Jesus says. Our goal is to burn brightly, to be a lighthouse in Pinson and our surrounding communities. And it's not an easy journey, as you probably realized as we were reading that text a moment ago. But to help us recall this journey that we're going through in these letters, we are trying to assign a one-word theme to each one of the letters to help jog our memory and stir our hearts to what that letter was about. In Ephesus, the one-word theme was remember. And that helps us to recall, Jesus said, remember the love and the zeal that you used to have for me and consider whether or not your religious routine and your doctrinal study has caused you to grow dull in your love for me and for people and repent of that coldness if you see it. In Smyrna, the one-word theme was stand. We learned, be faithful to Jesus despite the cost. Even unto death, be faithful to Him. Learn to daily die to yourself that you might be able to imitate Christ. In Pergamum, the one-word theme is uncompromising. From that church we learn, do not allow even the smallest of moral or spiritual compromise into any part of your life, but rather seek to find your satisfaction in Christ. And today, in the fourth letter, Thyatira, the one-word theme is undefiled undefiled. It is very interesting that the longest and most challenging of these seven letters is addressed to the least known and least significant of all the cities. Located about 40 miles from Pergamum, the last city that we were reading about, Thyatira really existed for one reason. It was a commerce center. It was located at the junction of several different roads that led to major cities. And that's really all it was. It was made up, it was the home of craftsmen, woodworkers, coppersmiths, potters, bakers, leather workers, on and on. People who made their living in a trade. They lived in Thyatira and sold their goods And the city was ran by trade guilds, basically unions. And those trade guilds, those unions, owned most of the land in Thyatira. 
and they had contracts for selling goods for their products. So if you were a leather worker, that guild had a certain part of the city, and they had a contract that allowed them to sell their goods, and they were the exclusive dealer of whatever those goods were. And each one of those guilds, to ensure their success, worshipped their own protector god. There was a patron deity that belonged to each one of those guilds. And there would often be celebrations, worship celebrations, for the members of the guild to get together and to celebrate and worship their patron god. And the most common activities in those celebrations involved idolatry and acts of immorality. And so as a Christian in Thyatira, you were likely a merchant or a craftsman, and you faced a daunting choice. Do I compromise my faith and join the guild of my trade and attend these worship celebrations, or do I resist and risk being unable to make a living, unable to sell my goods? That is the cultural external pressure that Christians in Thyatira were facing. At the same time, there was internal pressure in the church because just like in Pergamum, Christians in Thyatira had teachers within the church telling them, listen, we have grace. And so because we have grace, your actions really don't matter. They've all been forgiven. So don't pressure yourself, don't worry, don't fret over whether or not to join one of these guilds and whether or not to join in those worship celebrations. You can do that and still be a Christ follower. You can have your freedom in self-rule because of grace. You don't have to worry about what Jesus might be saying. He's okay with it. And while that was kind of an issue in Pergamum, it appears that in Thyatira, the number of people who had entered into sin following that line of thinking was great. And the church, because of the number of people following after this teaching, was being defiled. They were being defiled by sin. And so Jesus writes this letter. And in it, he calls out Jezebel. Now, likely, although there are many different interpretations, likely this was an actual lady, a prominent woman in the congregation who apparently claimed to have a gift of prophecy, to hear from the Lord and have revelations from Him. And she was a leading influence of the church falling into this sin. That was very likely not her name. Rather, a reference to the Old Testament figure Jezebel. Jesus is making a comparison to whatever this lady's name actually is. He is calling her Jezebel from the Old Testament, who was a figure in the Old Testament who schemed to try and kill God's true prophets and employ false prophets to convince God's people into the worship of Baal, which was her family's religion. And so what Jesus says is that I have given 
Thyatira's Jezebel, time to repent, which definitely tells us she was part of the church, part of the faith. I've given her time to repent. And Jesus says that time is now up. Nowhere in this letter does he say that she still has an opportunity to turn around, to turn back from what she's done. But he does say that her followers, identified as her children, those who have embraced her teaching, they still have time to repent, he says. They have time to turn back from that defilement before it's too late. And that is the context of this very challenging letter that Jesus writes to this very insignificant city, but this very important church to him. If you're a note taker and you grabbed one of our worship guides this morning, I invite you to look in it as we consider three exhortations for Agape Church from this letter to the congregation in Thyatira. There's obviously many exhortations in this letter, but we're going to dive into three this morning that we as a church in 2022 can apply to ourselves. Exhortation number one, what we can learn from Thyatira. We should strive to be a church full of grace and truth. We must strive from our leadership to our membership, every person involved in this church, we must live in such a way that we are striving to be people full of grace and full of truth. It is very interesting, if you're kind of keeping up, to contrast the letters to Thyatira and to Ephesus. Because if you will remember the Ephesian church, Jesus said, you are strong in your doctrine. When Josh preached about this a few weeks ago, their commendation was, you are strong in doctrine and you are really good at weeding out false teachers and making sure you take care of them. But here's my problem. You don't love people. You, you are strong in your doctrine. You are strong in your study. You're strong in your faith, but you are weak in love. You have grown cold in loving God, and you've grown cold in loving people. And then you get to Thyatira, and it's the exact opposite. Jesus tells Thyatira, you are strong in love. You are strong in faith. You serve people well, and I commend you for it. But you are losing your faithfulness to the Word of God. You are losing faithfulness to strong doctrine. You are becoming people who don't care about truth. And so in verse 20, in this text today, you see Jesus lay out the problem when essentially he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that which I do not tolerate. Being tolerant is a buzzword in our culture. And I, I want to say to you, Defining tolerance, tolerance you can define as accepting that which you disagree with, being accepting of that which you disagree with. And I want to say to you that in many, many ways, the Bible calls us to be tolerant. 
You should not hear that word and just say, oh, okay, that's a, that's a cultural thing. We're not, I'm going to push that aside because we're not supposed to be tolerant people. I disagree. There are, according to Scripture, certain people or situations that we should keep ourselves from. But in general, the teaching of the Bible, the teaching of the New Testament, is that we are called to love all people and to treat them as valuable image bearers of God no matter what their views are. That we are to be people who love others and treat them as valuable no matter what their views may be. In other words, there's, there's no room in the Christian ethic for us to degrade or mistreat people that we disagree with. It is not what Christ did, and it is not what Christ's followers should do. We also know that we're to tolerate one another in the church. In other words, we are to be accepting of people who may offend us or who may have vastly different personalities than we do. We are to accept people who we have a differing view of, of secondary issues. We should tolerate people when it comes to secondary issues. We should tolerate people who view things differently than we do, whether they view things differently in the culture or in the political realm or even in the theological realm. We should love one another and bear with one another and tolerate one another, except those that we disagree with. There is a place in the Bible where we are told to be people who are reasonable. As a matter of fact, there's a place in Scripture that tells us our reasonableness, which is easy for you to say, our reasonableness should be known by everyone. In other words, Christians should be known as people of reason. When people think of Christians, the Bible says they should think of people who it's not hard to get along with. You know what? They they may not agree with me on everything. They may not agree with me on every issue. They may view things differently than I do, but you know what? They're agreeable people. They will listen. They will discuss. They will talk. They will be nice. Not nice in a way that is flimsy and not rooted in what they believe, but they approach disagreements in a reasonable way. The Bible says we should be that way. So in many ways, we should be tolerant people. But here is what Jesus is making clear. Where we cannot be tolerant is that we cannot tolerate, we cannot accept, we cannot approve of what the Bible forbids. If the Bible speaks on an issue, if the Bible says this is a sin, this is wrong, this is rebellion against God, we cannot, we must not waver on that. We cannot say, well, that's okay for them. We cannot say that's okay in certain circumstances. We cannot say, well, that's not actually sinful, or I'm not going to call that sin when God calls it sin. That is the type of tolerance that we cannot have 
as believers. And so Thyatira was a church that loved people well, but they were inappropriately tolerant of an ideology that Scripture opposed. And so as a church, we want to strive to be like Jesus. John tells us that Jesus Christ was full of grace and full of truth. And when you hear me say that, I want you to understand, as a congregation, we're not trying to find balance. We're not trying to make sure, okay, we're a balanced church or balanced people. So, so I'm kind of a truth person. So I need to kind of balance that out and be a little bit more graceful or I'm a graceful person. I kind of need to balance that out, try to be a little bit more truthful. We're not looking for balance. It's fullness. The Bible says we are to be fully loving, filled with grace toward people, filled with love toward people, even those we disagree with. And we are to be fully truthful people. We want to be dedicated to the instructions of God. We want to be firm and rooted in what the Bible says. Grace and truth are not opposites. In the kingdom of God, they are partners. They are necessary characteristics of a church that wants to burn brightly for God. That people should be able to say of agape, that is a loving church. That is a hospitable church. That is a people that cares about others. That is a church that teaches the word and they hold firm to it and they don't move from it. Full of grace, full of truth. That is what Jesus is trying to help us see through the letters to Ephesus and to Thyatira. Exhortation number two that we learn from this church We must not, we cannot confuse God's grace with God's approval. Do not, agape, confuse God's grace with God's approval. What we can see in this letter is that Jesus has been calling Thyatira to repent for a while. He's been calling Jezebel and her followers and this teaching and those who are listening to it in the church. He's been calling them to repent. And they haven't done it. They have been dull to hear, slow to hear what he is saying. And I think that one of the main causes of their dullness was probably that they thought they had God's approval because in so many areas of their church, they were thriving. Jesus says, you are a loving and faithful church with good works. And he says, the latter of your works are greater than the first of your works. In other words, you're growing in it. You are a church that is maturing in love and faith and service and endurance. So I imagine there are people that are looking and summarizing and they're saying, well, I know that we're, I know that we're compromising over here. At least some say that we are by engaging with these worship celebration to pagans and idolatry and sexual immorality. But look at how, look at how good the church is doing. Look at how we're thriving. We're growing in faith and love and service. Look at all the stuff we've done. Surely God can't be unhappy with us. Otherwise we would not be successful. Many 
Christians have fallen victim to that same idea. How many times have you heard of a church or a church leader where you find out that for years of their ministry there was some secret hidden sin and you think, how did they get up and do all they were doing and and have that hidden life? And I think that many times it's because they were seeing all the good that was happening in the church and they were convinced God can't be that unhappy with me. And we can do that in our own individual lives. We see success in our life. We see areas where God is, like where we're growing and, and things that we want to happen or happen. Maybe it's in our finances or our businesses or just our marriages or whatever. Things are going well. And so we become convinced God's okay. I have his approval. Or maybe it's just that time has passed. We've been doing something for a while. We've been doing the same thing for a while, and time has passed, and God has not intervened. He's not disciplined, so it must be that he doesn't, really care. Must be that it's okay. We think we have God's approval when actually we just have his patience. He's being patient with us to give us time to repent. Jezebel and her followers were claiming to have revelations from God, new insights. Jesus called them the deep things of Satan because he was saying that's where they're actually from. But Jezebel and her followers in the church sounded very convincing. God has shown me this. Here's a new insight he's given me into what, you know, what the word actually means or what actually pleases him. And the church was listening to them. And I think one of the reasons they were doing that is the success in the church. I think another reason they may have been doing that is because that was a much easier path. It's a much easier path to tolerate because of all the cultural pressure. It was far easier to just go along with these worship celebrations of the trade guilds. And honestly, from a pleasure standpoint, they would rather do that anyway. So if they can become convinced God's pleased with this, God's okay with it, look, we even have an influential person in the church that says it's okay That's what we'll do. Rather than adhere to the orthodox teaching of the apostles and in Scripture. The truth is, a lot of times theological problems are really moral problems. People are willing to change what they believe so that they can do what they want. It's a whole lot easier to mold the Bible into saying what I want it to say so that my way of living can be validated than to give myself to Christ's rule. Because I think joy will be found in doing it my way rather than doing it in Christ's way. And all of this is why it is so important for us in order to not confuse grace with approval to labor in discipleship, to labor in growing as Christ followers together. It is why we've started this year and why you'll continue to hear us say and to press church, be in a discipling community. Find a place in this church. Give yourself to Bible studies or small groups or some gospel community or some discipling community group that is in our church where you can grow and be discipled. 
It's why we need biblical literacy and prayer growing in our church, in our homes, and when we come together. And not only to grow in biblical literacy and prayer, but life-giving community where we are exhorting one another to godliness. There is not a single person in this room that can grow in Christ's likeness without the encouragement and exhortation of other believers. And I stake that on what the Bible says to us. The Spirit will work in you, but the Spirit uses the encouragement and exhortation of other believers to help us to grow. So if we're going to burn brightly as a church, we need to join with one another. We need to confess our sins to one another at times. We at least need to be transparent with someone about ongoing sin problems that we're struggling with so that other people can help and help us grow. We need that to avoid confusing God's approval, excuse me, God's grace with God's approval. And then exhortation number three from Thyatira. Church, flee any form of sexual sin. Flee any form of sexual sin. While Jesus mentions both idolatry and sensuality as issues in Thyatira, if you look at the order in which he puts them, compare that to Pergamum, If you look at the number of times he mentions it, I think it is clear that sexual immorality was the prominent issue in Thyatira. I said just a few moments ago that there is always going to be a temptation in us and challenges and circumstances around us that calls into question whether or not true freedom is found in Christ rule or self-rule. And that challenge is never greater than when it comes to the issue of sexual ethics. Whether they are cultural questions of when and with who, or they are internal challenges about our own passions and and desires, there is no greater spiritual battleground than whether or not you will allow your acts of intimacy to be governed by God or by yourself. And everybody in the culture is fighting these battles. They don't even know it, but within the church we fight these battles as well. And so it is very critical when it comes to any issue of the faith, but especially this one, that you have within you a very deep conviction that Christ is for you. That Christ is for you. That when He calls you to deny yourself... He is for you. That when He calls you to live by His commands, He is for you. That His ethics are not to burden you. That His aim is not to inflict upon you a joyless life. That is not His goal. Listen, that's what the whole world thinks. God is a cosmic joy killer who wants to come down and tell us to deny ourselves that which would be pleasurable and live a miserable life. And Jesus is calling us to believe that when He calls you to deny yourself, He is doing so because that is actually best for you. 
I have come, he says, to give them life and give it abundantly. It is the enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And the key in a Christian life is, do I believe Jesus? Do I believe that he is for me? Do I believe he cares for me? Do I believe that denying myself is actually the pathway to greater pleasure and joy? Do I believe that it is the enemy who seeks to kill? Jesus seeks to give life. If you're not deeply convicted that Christ is for you and that he wants to maximize your joy, and I don't mean a trouble-free life, but to maximize the joy that you have in your life, if you don't believe that, again, you probably won't gladly follow him, especially when it comes to issues like this. He wants you to know he is a compassionate and wise and caring king. And he is urging you to life. And in doing so, he's urging you away from death. Proverbs 6 teaches that a person cannot engage, they cannot engage in any kind of sinful sexual ethic and not suffer for it in the end. It's like a person, Proverbs says, carrying fire against their chest and thinking they won't get burned. And we would look at someone going and picking up a, a flaming piece of wood and carrying it, and we're looking at them saying, what, what are you doing? Like, you're going to get hurt. And they're like, oh, no, I'm fine. This won't hurt me. Proverbs says, that is like someone who toys with sexual sin. And they think that it won't hurt, won't cause issues. And in this letter, and we read it this morning, like it, you can't ignore the fact that Jesus presents some of the strongest language in any of these letters to the people in the church who had given themselves to following this sin and ignoring his call to repent. Sickbed, tribulation, death. He's the God of the universe. He uses those words with purpose. He's calling his people to repent. So, and say to us this morning, the pull of sinful sexual ethics is strong. And there is not a single person immune from its seduction. And my exhortation, what I believe is the exhortation from Christ, is flee any hint of it. Don't, don't play with it. Don't, don't let it linger. Flee. Run from it as you would an enemy trying to destroy you. And if that's your battle, keep fighting. Keep fighting with every tool God has given you. And if you're losing that battle, repent and seek help, counsel. Be transparent with someone in the church to let them know, this is my battle and I need help. I need someone to assist me and Pray for me. So three exhortations. Strive to be a church full of grace and truth. Don't confuse God's grace with God's approval and flee any form of sexual sin. And there are many more. I would encourage you to read this letter on your own and see how God exhorts you. 
because there's so much in this particular letter, I think we could spend a couple of weeks on it. But what is the theme of Thyatira? We use the one word, undefiled. I would say the theme is this, adhere to the Word of God, cling to the Word of God, submit to what it says, so that you will be found as a people and as a church undefiled by sin and not only when you cling to His Word and submit to it, will you be found undefiled by sin, but you will be found with a reward. And that reward is a deeper partnership with Christ. So look at verse 25 and 26. Jesus' instructions to the church. He says, only hold fast what you have until I come. In other words, He's saying, Thyatira, keep growing in love and faith and service. Keep doing that. But also, those of you in the church who are not yet defiled by this sin, or those of you who are repenting, also adhere to my word. Hold fast what you have. Hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to the spirit of God. Hold fast to love and faith and service. Fight. Fight in prayer. Ask for the faith to believe that you have freedom in Christ. Fight to believe that, that you have freedom in following Him. That you can live joyfully, flourishing, doing what you were made to do. Depend upon Christ. Hold fast to that. Believe that. And then he goes on to say, in verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works into the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Now that, that is an amazing statement and it is one that we don't even fully understand what it means. That Christians who overcome and hold fast to the words of Christ will one day be given by Christ the right to have authority over the nations. It's very interesting if you look at the letter. And Josh pointed this out when he preached. He actually gave us a kind of a an outline that you can use for every one of these letters. And I, I wrote it down. And it, when we go through these letters, I'm looking at that outline. And one of them is how Jesus introduces himself. He introduces himself to each church differently. To Thyatira, he introduces himself as the Son of God. That is the only time in Revelation that that title is applied to Jesus. And that is interesting because the patron god of Thyatira was Apollo, the son of Zeus. The whole city, because every one of these cities in their mythology and their beliefs, they had patron gods, protector gods, and for Thyatira, it was the son of Zeus. And so Jesus introduces himself to the church as the one true son of the one true God. It's not Apollo. It is Jesus. And he, as the son of God, has authority over all the nations. That's what Revelation unfolds for us as you read the entire book. It is Jesus alone who has authority over all the nations. He alone will be the shepherd of the earth. And in some way, in some way that we don't understand, 
For his faithful ones, Jesus will give them a share of his rule. That he will share with us the reigning, the shepherding over the nations. And that is a promise that we are called to grab by faith and to believe in church. That is a promise coming from the Son of God that is worth laying aside defiling sin and trusting in the pleasures that come from following after Christ. It would be insane to trade the pleasures of this life, no matter how great they are, for the riches and the pleasures found in following after Jesus. I want to ask the worship team to come up, if they will, and you guys can bring the lights down. As they do that, if you'd grab your worship guide, and I want to call your attention to the front page in our prayer focus for this week that comes from Mark chapter 1. As we get ready to, to worship together, and respond to God's Word, I want us to look at this passage of Scripture from Mark 1. Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. That was the message that the disciples were to carry, those who follow, follow Jesus were to carry. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near to us. So, Repent and believe. Now, that is a message for anyone who doesn't know Christ. If right now today, whether it's on this replay that you're watching or in this room, if, if you've, if you've listened to all this today and you realize, you know what, I, I don't, the way that you're describing discipleship and following after Jesus, that is, that is not what my life looks like. Even if you have some understanding and belief in the facts about Jesus, and maybe you've spent time in church, but you would just say, I've never given my life repenting of sin and following after Christ, then this prayer focus, it's all about you. Repent and believe. Turn from self-rule and self-autonomy and believe in the joy that comes from following Christ and submitting to Him. And you you are not going to understand what all that means or what all that looks like, and you're not going to walk perfectly in it. But the beginning of the journey of being saved is crying out and saying, Jesus, this is what I want. I want to repent and believe. And if today... That is you, and that is your stirring. I want to call you to follow through. And before you leave here this morning, would you please come and shake my hand and let me know that I think this is me, and we will make time to talk together in the coming week. But church, this is not just for those who don't know Christ. This is the Christian life. Repent and believe every single day. Every day to put yourself in the presence of Jesus in His Word and prayer and listen to what He is saying and the joy that He is giving you. And when He convicts you and shows you 
where you need to follow him more diligently or where you need to turn from some sin that is abiding or that you're wrestling with is repent and believe. Every single day of your life, Jesus, I want to be my own God. I repent of that. In this situation, with this person, in this circumstance, I want to rule myself. Jesus, I repent of that and I believe that your rule is better. So let that be our prayer this week for our church. Pray that our church would be characterized by its people continually responding to God with repentance and belief. I want to ask some prayer partners to come up this morning. They'll be over here to my left. As we worship together and think about God's Word, I want to invite you that if there is anything you need prayer for today, to come and be prayed for. It may be something we've talked about in this message. It may not. It may be a physical issue you want to be healed from or you want to ask God's help in a relationship issue or anything. Whatever your burden is, you know what it is. This morning, if you would like to receive prayer, that is why they're here. So come and be prayed for. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. We've looked at His Word. We've heard from Him. It is not an easy word. This was a challenging word, but it is good. So think about what he is saying. Fix your eyes on him. Worship and respond. That, agape, is where we find life. Amen.